Welcome to the Not A Mommy Yet podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Fay. I started the Not A Mommy Yet blog and this podcast because I've always known I want to be a parent one day, and you might be listening because you feel the same. You may have also heard people with kids say things like, I wish I had known this before I had kids, or I wish I had done that. Hearing those comments made me think about the parts of my life I want to spend more time focusing on before I have kids in ways that will benefit me as a parent. So I started a list of people who can teach me about health, money, relationships, psychology, and more, and started interviewing them, and this podcast was born. Whether you plan to have kids or not, I think you'll find something interesting in this podcast for you. I hope you enjoy, subscribe, and maybe even share it with a friend. Thank you so much for listening. Today on the Not A Mommy Up podcast, I'm lucky to be speaking with Anne Hodder-Ship. Anne is a multi-certified sex and relationships educator with over 12 years of experience and professional training in breathwork and holistic dream work. She boasts a unique understanding of age-appropriate sex education, trauma-informed healing, critical thinking, and emotional intelligence. Anne coaches, guides, and supports clients through profound healing and specializes in working with trauma and shame, especially the ways trauma and shame affect and disrupt our day-to-day lives. Anne received her first certification and endorsement by the renowned San Francisco Sex Information Program and continued her training via the American College of Sexologists International and Planned Parenthood Los Angeles' school-based sex education program, where she honed a special skill with working with, ad- with adolescents. Anne also holds professional training in breathwork facilitation and dream work under the guidance of David Elliott and Kezia Vita. These two unique healing methods allow for deeper self-connection, emotional intelligence development, trauma resolution, and profound personal growth. In addition to her private practice and public workshops, Anne is the founder of and lead educator at Everyone Deserves Sex Education which provides a range of education-based services by educators who are trauma-informed, inclusive, and LGBTQIA plus friendly. Thank you so much for being here, Anne. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, Yeah, so I'm so grateful that you're on the podcast today because when I think about why I started all of this and wanted to go into this, like, journey of, like, opening myself up to the work that I could be doing, the education that I could be exposing myself to, what you're doing is very, very relevant, especially when I read on your site that you help parents talk to their kids about sex mm-hmm. too and get them in a comfortable place. But when I think about before that time comes, like before we have kids and the ways we can be looking at our own relationships with our bodies and sex and, and relationships with others, um, you know, the list goes on and really looking at our subconscious and, um, helping I don't want to say fix, but like, I guess refine or or talk through it and kind of figure out where those hangups are. Um, what you're doing is amazing. So yeah, of course. Um, and it's kind of like what you went through in in 2014, which was a a big moment in your life that year. Um, so if you want to take us through kind of what happened then and how you became a sex and relationship coach. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I have been working in the adult industry, writing about sex and working with companies that make products for funner sex and more interesting sex um, for a really long time. And I was also a sex writer for LA Weekly. So, um, and I I edited a a sex column. Um, So I was doing all this stuff already. And I knew lots about sex and sexuality because as a journalist, you kind of have to, in a very short period of time, become an instant expert in whatever you're writing about. And so Mm -hmm. while I had lots of knowledge, I lacked um, the skills that, really you can only get by going either getting trained and then like just jumping in and doing it. Um, Mm -hmm. how do I facilitate this information? Am I using the most up-to-date language? Am I, 
you know, are there areas that I am, um, that I think that I know all about, but actually there are some spots that I don't know anything about because Mm -hmm. it's not as prevalent online, or maybe they haven't really done any research studies that have been published yet, but Mm -hmm. there is relevant info to know. So, um, there were all kinds of shifts and changes already happening in 2014 in my personal life. I had been in and out of an incredibly unhealthy and a bit emotionally damaging or at least detrimental relationship. And so around March, I just sort of, um, lost my ability to deal and I was able to leave, get out, find a place, my own place to live and moved in in April. And, um, even then I had, I was still just kind of like trucking along with the business I was running. Um, I, I would do PR and marketing in the sex industry. Mm-hmm. So it was really about just like getting my, my life back together the way that I wanted to live my life, um, separate from this, this union that I had really been kind of stuck in Mm -hmm. for a while. And, uh, a few months later, I sort of accidentally met my current partner, married partner. And, um, he had a lot of like woo woo stuff that he was working on. He does a lot of work in breath work Mm -hmm. and, um, had been doing dream work with, um, with Kezia actually for a while. And he introduced me to her and I started doing dream work about halfway through 2014. And by doing that, I was sort of like demolishing, uncovering a lot of layers of just shit in my subconscious that I was, um, reasonably numbed out to and disconnected from. And while I was doing a lot of that work, uh, it, it sort of clicked that, why don't I go get certified or at least look up some certifications to Mm -hmm. see if there is actually a place I could go to refine what I knew and to learn some actual facilitation skills. And my good friend, Elle Chase, who was also a sex educator and a body activist, um, body acceptance activist specifically, Mm -hmm. she had gone to San Francisco sex information to get trained. And she was just like, why don't you do that? And so mm-hmm. I applied and I was really lucky to get in the first time. It, it can be competitive just because there's a small group that are accepted. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just sort of started the journey. And, uh, and then it really, things really started clicking. Like they it just really, the approach that they took to, uh, how to provide information to someone mm-hmm. in a short period of time really just like hit home. Cause it was very journalistic. It mm-hmm. was, they use a, a model, of um, answering questions that is very much about like get to the point, kind of like the lead paragraph in an article where you kind of give as much information as you can in that first paragraph, knowing that majority of people are probably not going to read until the end. Right, right. But if the client wants to learn more and you ask some clarifying questions, then you can write the next paragraph or answer the next part, get into a little bit more detail with specific suggestions. Um, and then if they want more, you can... Um, offer some more suggestions, ask some more clarifications and have like a dialogue. And then ultimately at the end, if you reach a point where it's clear that they need to work with a practitioner, um, or like intensive therapy, for instance, then you can refer out and, um, at being connected with a lot of other sex positive therapists and practitioners who know how to respond to questions and to talk about sexuality in um, without the, the bias that is commonly found in the medical community and in the mental health community, um, is really valuable. So I also was connected to that network. And, um, so I just started honing that skill and Planned Parenthood had another training that really, um, honed into how to do this, but for 14 year olds, um, or, you know, teenagers and in exchange for the training, um, which is about 40 hours, you then had to volunteer in the school system. So 
that was when I really honed this ability to just sort of like get to the damn point, mm -hmm. especially when you're working with someone who cognitively <laughs> is just sort of like, give me an answer. Is it good or is it bad? Yeah. Is it healthy or is it unhealthy? Yeah. Am I happy or am I sad? You yeah. know, like <laughs> back to this binary idea of how humans are, which we know isn't actually how humans are. Yeah. But being able to like meet that person where they're at in that headspace and then like just, you know, offer some other stuff so that maybe you can make some space for, for some of the gray area that yeah. ultimately is required when you are teaching about sex because humans are nothing but deviations from what we think is normal. Right. We're swimming in the gray area <laughs> and no one wants to admit it because the gray area means there are no clean answers or simple tie it with a bow right. pieces of information. Yeah, absolutely. And when you're working with kids, I can imagine that would <laughs> like more so be the case than anyone, but also with parents. So when it comes to the sex, sex and relationship education that you provide in schools and for parents, um, do you, I, I would love to know like kind of your, for like a little bit more about your approach, but also how you kind of connect parents with the schools. So what parents can be doing at home and what schools can be doing to support that and vice versa. Well, what I found a great question. I don't work as much in schools anymore, partly because I'm no longer able just time-wise to volunteer with Planned Parenthood. Working in schools can be challenging, at least in the school systems, because there's a lot of red tape. You mm -hmm. have to follow the California, because we're in California, mm -hmm. um, education <laughs> code. And so you... I don't necessarily get to make my own curriculum and bring it into a school. It has to be oh, curriculum okay. that's approved. And then parents have the option to opt in or out, which is funny because they're deciding, of course, for their kid. Legally, that's what they're allowed to do. But what a lot of parents don't realize is their own discomfort, their own bias yes. ultimately gets projected onto their kid. And we think we're saving them or protecting them or keeping them safe by removing their access to information. But what we actually know is that that is a detriment. That's right. actually disempowering to remove access to information. So what I do now is I actually, uh, on a more like private one-on-one -on -one basis, if a parent either recognizes that their school is lacking in the education that they provide, or they don't, or they just like to supplement, yeah. or whatever their issue might be, um, or even they're able to recognize, like, I have no damn clue how to talk to my kid. My kid just asked me a question about his penis, and I was like, I don't fucking know, <laughs> but I don't know how to deal with that without shaming him accidentally by having, you know, I don't want my facial expression to make him think that I think it's disgusting. Yeah. I want him to, I'm honored that he's asking me. I want him to be able to, like, there are tons of parents who are, have that headspace mm -hmm. and they just don't know how to deal because we are the adults today, like us, I suppose we're adults now. <laughs> we're just, you know, grown up versions of what we learned as right. kids. Yes. There was no real education access. We had to find it ourselves. Um, it's still happening today with, with kids state to state. So we just end up being confused kids and teenagers winging it into adults still winging it. Exactly. But then carrying around all the baggage and pain from the trial and error mm -hmm. that we had to go to undergo while we were trying to figure things out still with no idea if we actually figured anything out at all. Right. So some of us tell ourselves we did figure it out. I got the answer. I know how to do it. Everyone else sucks. Mm -hmm. Or it's, I'm still not sure, but I don't really like not knowing. So I'm going to try this and then I'll look around and see if someone seems to have it better figured out. And then I'll just do what they're doing. <laughs> and then if that didn't work, then I'll keep looking around. I feel like that's parenting and absolutely and for anything. hundred percent. There's no manual for any of it. Right. And we really just have to give ourselves space and like permission to fuck shit up. Cause we are going to, no matter what, Yeah. you can be the best parent ever, but you just don't know if something is, how something is going to impact the kid. Cause mm -hmm. intent is one thing. I genuinely think we all intend to not be assholes. <laughs> 
But that doesn't mean that we might actually impact someone in a way where they're like, you're an asshole. Yeah. And then you're kind of sitting there like, no, I'm not. I didn't. I, I was doing this because this is what I would have liked when I was a kid. And it's yeah. like, cool, totally valid. But also your kid is telling you that that didn't work for them. Yeah. So what do you do next? So having, working with someone like me or any other type of a, you know, a coach or an educator or even, you know, doula style, um, support systems can just be that like extra ear. Mm -hmm. So when you're sitting there like, I can't believe this happened. My kid is such an asshole dick, whatever, you know, you want to call them. And (laughs) why, why is she calling me these names? Why did this not work out? She just doesn't get it. And then you have this third party who's like, okay, totally. But what if this? And it's in an environment that is not clinical. No one is trying to diagnose or analyze because that's not the goal. Mm -hmm. If that is necessary, we'll refer out, of course. But Mm -hmm. I find the majority of the clients who come to me, they don't need intensive therapy. They think they might. They think that they're completely broken. But actually, they are just missing information and perspective for a lot of really valid reasons. And they have the the means and the ability and the willingness to come to someone like me to sort of fill in those gaps. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Um, especially because, you know, we only know what we obviously went through. Mm -hmm. And when I think about what my parents talked to me about, it was like nothing. Like Mm -hmm. they, they took the approach of like, let's just let them watch anything, ask questions when they're ready. Like they were just kind of like, very open to exposing us to a lot of different things. Which They're a little is, hands off. It sounds yes, mm-hmm. very hands off. Mm-hmm. Um, like <laughs> definitely, my mom like turned to me in the car. I'll never forget this, and she just was like, "If Melissa's having sex, she better be on birth control." And that was like like on put you. on me all of a sudden for my little sister, and I was like, "Okay, too much labor." Yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, it was. Yeah, it was definitely hands-off, which I think, like, worked for a lot of reasons because it gave us, in in all aspects of our life, that's how they kind of were. So we were very independent kids, like, very independent to this Mm -hmm. day. We, like, stand up to them in ways none of my friends would ever do to their parents. Mm -hmm. So, like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, like, it's a double-edged sword. Like, I don't really know if it's great or not. But um, so when parents are kind of more like that and kids are, are more so getting all of their information from mm-hmm. school, mm-hmm. um, what would you say is like a good thing for parents to kind of compromise a little bit who might be a little bit more hands-off? Not for reasons necessarily that they're like scared or like unsure, but mm-hmm. just because that's their approach. Yeah, I think that, you know, my parents were similar-ish in the sense that it felt a little bit hands-off. Mm-hmm. But I think for parents who are like, I need to be hands-off because I don't really know mm-hmm. what to say. And also I know my kid will just run away yeah. if I even try. Yeah. Um, not assume, it's really important to not assume that the school hasn't handled. Okay. A lot of schools... Don't. Yeah. Even if the law requires it, we don't, there is no federal mandate for sex education state to state. The states yeah. get to actually decide. It was crazy on your site. 24 states and DC currently mandate sex education, but that's half of the country. That's yeah. Like... And that's only medically accurate. Okay. So it's like, that means sex ed could be mandated in other schools, but it doesn't actually matter what it is. So it is legally allowed like it's legal to lie to kids in states where they don't have a law that requires things to be medically accurate and we know that that happens we hear constantly as sex educators we hear stories of how what sex ed in school was like and how people were compared to chewed up bubble gum you know used up don't let so many people chew the same piece because by the time you're betrothed that you're going to get married to you know very you know marriage 
obsessed yeah. um, education, there's no flavor left and you're chewy and gross and oh he's just going to want to spit you out. Also very heteronormative because most of the time yes. this idea of purity and being used up is imposed onto women and mm-hmm. or females, young women. So, um, so anyway, that still happens today. There's also, you know, like using a used sock. There's like uh, sticky tape. By the time you stick the tape to too many people, it doesn't stick anymore and you're useless. And it's God. like, holy shit, we're, we're telling 13 and 14 year olds this. And their Just brains they are don't very, want them to have sex. Basically, basically the goal is not to, to exactly. Yeah. It's not to inform. It's not to give information at all. Right. If it was, there would actually be information in the, in the curriculum. Right. Instead, it's scare tactics, mm-hmm. shame tactics to try to ultimately um, compel a behavior change mm-hmm. or to try to control the behavior we think they're engaging in. What we know about people, especially kids, the minute you try to tell them not to do something, what the fuck are they going to do? Are they going to say, yes, thank you so, so much, sir? <laughs> no. They're going to say, uh, uh, what? That yeah. sounds cool. Like We know that abstinence doesn't work because of the D.A.R.E. program. Mm-hmm. We like literally, it's one of the biggest colossal failures that we have learned is the DARE program possibly even compelled substance use. And we know that abstinence only sex education not only doesn't work statistically, we have information to support that. Yeah. It's also considered harmful to children. Yeah. So I totally believe that. And despite all of that information that is very much prevalent, it's not just a bunch of us squawking on Twitter about it, mm-hmm. that still is not enough to compel. Uh, change on a federal or even on a state level. So that is why some school systems bring in organizations like Planned Parenthood that have a pre-done curriculum that is approved by education code and they make it a part of the year. Um, And that's what I was a part of. Uh, Not every state, of course, has that, but there are educational organizations that exist in some states that will offer sort of contracted sex ed to come into the school and have practitioners do it. Oh, okay. The important thing is to vet that organization because, again, depending on the state law, there isn't a watchdog making sure that each organization has an accurate, good curriculum. It Mm -hmm. could really be anything. So um, it takes some time to, you know, do a little bit of research. And um, so sex educators like me, we often end up getting uh, contacted by the parents themselves because they're just not sure. Right. And so anyway, you know, long roundabout answer, but the real thing, if a parent is just like, I need to be hands off because I can't do it for whatever reason, um, it's really great to actually get some physical resources, some books, maybe a list of websites, which Mm -hmm. I can provide you with for the show notes. Yeah. And just say, hey, don't freak out. I know this is going to seem really awkward, um, but it's possible you're going to want information about this stuff, and I want to make sure that you have access. You are absolutely welcome to talk to me about it, but if that feels weird, you don't have to. I'm just going to leave these books here. They will always be here. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to check to see if they're gone, mm-hmm. um, but here. Okay. And so the kid can do what they want with it. Yeah. And I remember there was a book. It might have been Our Bodies, Ourselves, one of those you know illustrated <laughs> books, and my parents had done something kind of similar. I don't think they had a conversation with me, but I just remember they were just like, here's a book. Yeah. And I was like, oh, what's this book? And um, that, and I, I remember looking at that book a lot. Right. So when you say medically accurate um, curriculum, is that just purely what, like our body, what's happening in our bodies and what happens when you have sex? Like, is it actually including consent and all of like, the verbal and nonverbal cues and like intimacy, like is that all considered medically accurate too? And that's it's a really good question. So medically accurate specifically means that the information provided can be backed by medicine or science. Okay. So there are some things that literally aren't um, 
researchable because either ethically we can't do that kind of research Mm -hmm. or it's something that's a little bit more esoteric. So we actually, um, the kind of curriculum that you're going to want is something that's called, you know, comprehensive or pleasure-based sex education, um, medically accurate pleasure-based sex education that will end up encompassing, um, making sure that the facts are actually accurate and true. And also it's not just about pregnancy prevention and how not to get herpes. Mm -hmm. It's all about herpes is normal. Here's what you do. If you get it, no big deal. Most of us have it anyway. (laughs) And also here's what sex is really for. It's not for procreation. It's not something special that you bestow onto someone after you marry them. It's not a thing that's only for making babies. All of that is bullshit. People have sex because it feels good. Sex is never supposed to hurt. All of the things we think are true about first-time sex actually isn't true medically, but it's true because that's just the experience so many people end up having. So that becomes the expectation. And just making sure that we kind of like rectify um, a lot of the misconceptions that seem to be used as truths while also providing um, additional information that's usually missing from basic education. Because even, you know, education code, like school-based sex ed is not often, I would say majority is not pleasure-based because there is still this idea that if you tell kids that sex feels good, they're going to be like, I'm going to do it every day. (laughs) They already know that it's supposed to feel good and is exciting in some, for some reason. So if we affirm that it feels good, we're just like, we're just not lying to them anymore. (laughs) So it's not going to actually cause anyone any harm. If we, if we talk about that, it feels good and here's how to make it feel good emotionally and also physically, and here's how you do it so you can feel safe and identify what, what is your level of safety, how do you reduce the risk of things that you want to try to avoid, mm-hmm. how do you communicate about that with someone before you start doing stuff, mm-hmm. that's all the stuff that has to be a part of a, a comprehensive sex ed curriculum to make sure that we're really equipping kids with the stuff they actually need um, without imposing our own fears. Yeah, definitely. Um, so my boyfriend, he has a 12 year old Mm -hmm. and he was raised in a very Catholic and like strict environment. So it wasn't really talked about. Um, but for him now it's like all this whole new thing that he has to talk to his son about. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's been really interesting to see like, like really awesome actually, because he's just been very open. He's also a doctor. So it's definitely Mm -hmm. been a little bit more technical, but also talking to his son about, um, you know, consent and like, you can't just touch girls. Like, mm-hmm. however, even if it's just like friendly, like you have to kind of be aware of, of what they're comfortable with as well. Um, but something that's interesting, not specifically for my boyfriend, but just for teenagers going through this, how do you talk to them about masturbation? That's a great question. I mean, it's again, one of those things where if you just kind of like sit next to them on the couch while they're playing video games and say, you know what? I really want to talk about jerking off. Do you have a minute? Like the kid is going to just fucking, you know, implode. Yeah. Um, and so it's really just, I think giving the kid permission in general to be curious and ask questions and it doesn't have to be right then. And it doesn't have to be like a scheduled session, Mm -hmm. but just that, um, you want the kid to know that like you are an ally, mm-hmm. not an adversary mm-hmm. or someone who is going to flip out or freak out if a, if a problem comes normalizing the fact that I, it might be hard for me to hear some stuff, but that's actually my shit, not yours. Right. Um, I would much rather you feel comfortable and safe in this house than not because yeah. then where else are you going to go? Mm-hmm. And I love you too much to leave you hanging like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, if 
there is reason to talk about it, like, you know, hygiene stuff. Like, if, you know, a kid is leaving, like, crusty tube socks all over the house, yeah. and it's just, like, gross, and you don't want to have to pick them up anymore, yeah. then in those moments, it's less about, I know you're jerking it because look at all of this evidence, <laughs> and more like, hey, man, like, I'm seeing, like, I'm picking up a lot of these socks. I don't want to have to do that. I think it's fantastic whatever you're up to, but I need you to also take on the responsibility of like cleaning up after yourself. Yeah. yeah. Um, because that's really personal and private and I don't want to have to take care of that. Yeah. You know? Um, and just sort of seeing like laying the bricks kind of Mm -hmm. for those kinds of conversations. Um, like each one is a little bit of a permission giving statement and you can't force the kid to have a conversation about masturbation again. But this is one of those things where I'm here I have a lot of information I can give you about it, if right. that's true. Or I actually don't really know a whole lot about it, but I don't want to leave you hanging because I love you and respect you. Mm-hmm. So here's a book or here are some websites if you ever have any curiosities. Like, this is where I would rather you go than other places, and I'll never check. I'm not going to look at your browser history. I'm mm-hmm. not going to investigate, you know, if you've actually read or dog-eared any of the books. Yeah. Um, but just know it's here. Yeah. That's awesome. I think that is very helpful for parents <laughs> to just like provide their kids with that outlet. If yeah, they want take it. the pressure off. Like exactly. we don't have to know all the answers. Why should we? Yeah, it doesn't have to be a sit down like a lecture. Like, no. like it's it to never be, gonna work. Yeah, it, it has to be. Yeah, it has know? to be kind of kid driven. I'm. I, that's kind of what I'm getting from this. Yeah, I think you know we. It's hard to force any kind of conversation with a yeah. kid because depending on the kid, if it's not on their terms, if you're not meeting them where they're at. Like if you're ready for the conversation, but they're not like they just got home from school or they're hungry or they're bored or embarrassed and you keep going in a way that's like not, that's putting your needs in front of the kids and giving them right. an indirect lesson that their comfort level doesn't matter. Yeah. Cause the parents just like, I need to talk about this. Right. So you're making it about your need to get it out so you can feel like, Oh good. I'm done. And I've done yes, it. Yes. Yes. So really being conscious of our own intentions before we do anything is really important. Yes. And, um, instead just like keeping the door always slightly ajar for the conversation. So letting the kid lead is definitely important Mm -hmm. while also recognizing like it's really possible the kid will never come up to you and say, Hey mom, I'm ready to talk about my dick with you, or I'm ready to talk about, you know, my vagina and that thing that I think is a clitoris, but I don't know what it's actually called or how to pronounce it. You know, that may never happen. And that's okay. Not a reflection of you. As long as you've given them some other avenues to get information, it'll be okay. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And that's also where, you know, some of these coaches and educators come into play. Mm -hmm. Um, We are available almost like a doula, but like sex ed type doula where, you know, we can, I haven't actually figured out exactly how to make this available, but um, I've been talking to a lot of parents about like having a little package where, you know, you have access to me via text or email or you can call me you know, this many times each month with this, whatever kind of support you might need. Or if you want to give your kid access, here's the number they can text and we will have an agreement of confidentiality unless, uh, the kid discloses that they might be harming themselves or someone else or might be in danger in some way. Mm -hmm. And that'll of course also be disclosed to the kid. But if there's a conversation where the kid is just like, Oh, I I am just curious about sex and I might have sex on Thursday and I just don't really know what condom to Mm -hmm. kind of buy. I'm not going to then, report to the parent he's going to bang someone on Thursday. Right, you know? right. Because um, that ends up breaching everyone's Privacy. level of trust. Yeah, and the parents exactly don't trust. need to know that. They really don't. Yeah. Um, some parents want to know every little detail, but that's to appease their own anxiety. That's not actually necessarily going to help 
Sometimes right. we think knowing everything is the answer to help us feel better. Right. And I think, I think it would give me peace of mind to know that my kid would have someone like you to go to. Right. Right. I, the, at least there's somebody. It's okay if it's not me. That's like your ego too. Just being totally. like inserting yourself into that and kind of feeling like that ha- it has to be you. But right. Um, I love that. I think that's a great thing. Yeah. I hope you do that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, like I, do, I do it now unofficially and I just want okay, to try cool. to find, um, cause I've been working with or talking with a lot of parents who are, you know, they have family dynamics that are considered quote unquote non-traditional. Mm-hmm. Um, and they like, for instance, I have, um, there's a couple that are lesbians. They've literally never really interacted with a penis ever in their entire lives. Mm-hmm. And they just gave birth to a penis having baby. And mm-hmm. they're like, this is interesting. Mm-hmm. And, um, another couple, similar situation, baby with a penis, dealing with a penis for the first time. How do I keep it clean? I actually don't really know the hygiene yeah. of a penis and just really being like open. Like I actually have no idea how to do this. And I talk to my, like my gyno doesn't know, like, am I going to go to the pediatrician and just say like, what do I do with foreskin? We, a lot of the medical community, they're actually not trained to have right. conversations about sex. They right. can talk about anatomy, but even then it's, it's so clinical that it's also missing some of the human element. Mm-hmm. And we know that most medical curricula, probably like eight hours out of four years of school is dedicated to sex in some way, mm-hmm. only eight hours. And I do a sex ed training that's 25 hours and that's not enough. Mm-hmm. So these, these parents are just trying to figure out like, who can I talk to, to get more information? And I I know that my friends and community would want that kind of support too, but we have to like, how do I make it accessible and affordable as well? Mm -hmm. So that's where, you know, where I'm at right now, where, um, I just need to basically work with someone who does sales Mm -hmm. to figure out like, how do we make this a valuable, you know, thing that's accessible to more people and isn't just a thing that like rich people have access to and then right. everyone else just has to fucking figure it out. Yeah. That's always the hard thing with like one-on-one anything. Mm-hmm. It's um, totally challenging. It accessible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that's great. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review and share it with a friend. Check out the podcast notes for the links we mentioned in our conversation and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode. Thanks for listening.